this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. So when I first saw this interview on my calendar, I thought, oh, here we go. I've got an interview with a doctor for Built to Sell Radio. This is going to be boring. So I start the interview and like within 30 seconds, Dr. Kumar is blowing me away. He is an amazing entrepreneur. He started ShapeUp, uh, which he built to 20 million in annual revenue, ultimately acquired by a strategic back by Richard Branson. Uh, Dr. Kumar is a smart guy and he is going to teach us a lot in this interview. He talks about um, fixed cost leverage, um, why you should pitch the worst investors first, something called escape velocity, which he'll define for you. Um, talks about optionality and how that gives you negotiation leverage. He's got a strong opinion that companies are bought, not sold. Uh, and the difference, and I found this fascinating, the difference between an evergreen venture capital fund and one with a liquidity horizon, far from boring. Dr. Kumar hit it out of the park. Here is one of my favorite interviews of Built to Sell Radio, Dr. Rajiv Kumar. Rajiv Kumar, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, thanks, John. Glad to be here. So you started this company, Shape Up. Tell me a little bit about what you guys did. The Shape Up uh, is an employee well-being software company. So we work with uh, mostly large employers, and what we do is help them to help their employees improve their overall health and well-being. So you can think of it as um, including uh, topics such as how to increase physical activity, uh, how to eat a healthier diet, uh, how to manage my stress, uh, how to lose weight, uh, how to increase my energy and, and productivity at work. And uh, we, we have a software platform that essentially brings people together in a social uh, gamified experience that makes it fun to uh, set a goal and, and track your progress toward achieving um, a physical activity target, for example, and to do that together with your coworkers in a kind of friendly competition uh, where you both have that social support as well as um, some financial rewards that you can earn from your employer uh, for staying engaged over time and achieving certain benchmarks. So we've uh, primarily sold to uh, Fortune 500 companies, uh, you know, very large employers that have been seeing rising healthcare costs and really looking for a way to bring those costs under control, but even more importantly, trying to find ways to increase employee engagement and overall employee productivity. And they, they really view well-being as a place they want to invest uh, when it comes to their employee population. That's really cool. So you, I mean, I'd be curious to know why you chose that route to market, because I mean, if you developed a, I'm assuming it's a mobile app that uh, is the primary sort of uh, interface. It is now. Uh, you know, we started the company back in 2006, so that was you know before the iPhone 
existed. And, and so it was primarily a web application uh, at the time, but uh, we have certainly evolved in, into being a mobile, mobile first uh, solution. Got it. So, you know, I'd be familiar with, I mean, this is years ago now, but the Nike Pulse um, kind of app and, and sort of ecosystem that was developed around that. Um, lots of different fitness apps that I've you know goofed around with on my iPhone. Um, they went direct to the end customer, right? And and you know various. Um, what's the one uh, that is the cycling one? Um, Strava. Strava, yeah, that that got a bit of traction, uh, um, and lots of other sort of competing apps. Why did you guys choose to go through, uh, you know, the the HR departments of of Fortune 500 companies as a sort of route to market? Yeah, well, you know, like a lot of uh, businesses and a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, we actually stumbled into this very accidentally. Um, Shape Up is a, a company that I started when I was in medical school at Brown University, and um, it actually began as a nonprofit organization. That was my effort uh, locally in Rhode Island to try to um, help my patients uh, uh, increase their physical activity, eat healthier, and to lose weight. So I was seeing obesity as something that was growing. And uh, we didn't have a lot of tools in the medical community to really help people. And eventually, we were putting patients on medications and, and so forth as they you know, began to have high blood pressure and high cholesterol and diabetes and so forth. And so I just figured there had to be a way to help you know, get people to, to prevent the onset of this chronic disease and, and to lose weight and lead healthier lifestyles. So I created Shape Up Rhode Island as sort of a community initiative, and it was direct to consumer in the beginning. We invited anybody in the community to sign up and come onto the website, form a team, and the teams would compete to lose weight. And um, it, what we found is it, we immediately began to get phone calls from employers uh, in the community that heard about the program, that had some employees who had participated, and they started to offer to pay for those employees and sponsor them. And so that was the aha moment for us. We kind of talked to those employers and said, you know, why are you interested in paying for this? And they said, well, you know, we have rising healthcare costs and we have, you know, engagement issues, and we think this is a really great way to show our employees we care about them, also to help control healthcare costs and to improve productivity. And so that's when we sort of shifted our model. We, we spun out a, a separate company as a for-profit, um, called it ShapeUp, and decided to go after HR departments and, and sell into HR as a way to reach a lot more people and uh, be able to deliver a solution to the end user for free. Uh, the corporation pays for it. Love it, love it. I love, I love the you know the so-called pivot when you know you start in one direction and and demand and surprise takes you in a completely different direction. So you're licensing it to the HR departments of, of large companies. Uh, I mean, what would it cost, you know, if I, if I wanted, is it on a per user basis? Give me an average, you know, deployment. What would that cost a company? Yeah, we charge uh, on a per employee per month basis or a per employee per year. And generally companies are paying anywhere from, you know, four to $5 per employee per month. So think of it as 50 or $60 per employee per year. To have access to the platform. Wow, that that really adds up. If you've got five or ten thousand employees, certainly does. Um, but if you think about it in comparison to healthcare costs, uh, it's a small fraction of what companies are paying for healthcare for their employees. Right, often in the tens of thousands of dollars uh, per employee per year. So it's a very very small fraction. And what we see is that uh, large employers spend anywhere from one to three percent of their total uh, healthcare budget on health and wellness initiatives for their employees. So there's there's an existing budget for this, and, and companies have really bought into it. I guess I, I, I'd love to know how you made that case, because I, I get the case, like healthier employees means less you know, visits to the doctor, less medication, et cetera. But it seems kind of squishy to me, like one degree removed, hard to linearly make the case that you, know, you invest 
50 grand a year in this program and you were going to save, you know, 200 grand in healthcare costs. Did you get that linear with them where you were able to make the business case or did it require a leap of logic on the behalf of the, the, the Fortune 500 company? You know, initially we thought that it was going to all come down to the ROI that we had to put together this rock solid ROI analysis to show them exactly how much money we were saving for every dollar they were spending. But it turns out that, you know, companies generally are fairly benevolent to their employees and uh, across the country, you know, people have just simply begun to see well-being as something that is the right thing to do for their employees. They know that their employees are struggling. You know, the most, the majority of Americans are overweight or obese. Uh, you know, 90% of us don't exercise on a regular basis. And so, you know, employees are, are looking for help. And a lot of employers have decided, we, we intuitively believe this will improve healthcare costs. It's preventative. Um, you know, it makes sense if you help your employees lose weight and then re- reduce diabetes, uh, you know, obesity in the population will reduce diabetes and heart disease and so forth. So intuitively believe in it and it's the right thing to do. Let's invest there and let's see if we can prove it out over time that there's actually cost savings. Now we do quite a bit of work now through our analytics team, which I run, uh, proving, uh, that this does work. And we take a look at absenteeism and we took a look at presenteeism. We look at workers comp disability, sick days, We've even looked at stock price performance and market hmm. capitalization over time for our clients. Um, you know, productivity, you know, ROI, uh, human capital ROI. So we can look at a lot of different metrics, and they all go up and to the right over time as clients invest in our solution. So we've got just kind of an overwhelming amount of data to support um, what this really does. So what was the go-to-market strategy? Did you did you hire like a sales force to go call on these HR departments at Fortune 500 companies? Did you personally go? Like, what was that? The first few sales, what, who made them and how did they get done? Yeah, so the company was started by myself and uh, my best friend from medical school, uh, Brad Weinberg. So the two of us um, were, were the employees of the company for the first year. And so, you know, we, we did everything from building the software to, to selling it. And so we went on a lot of sales calls. Um, you know, we tried to do much of it over the phone. And that worked uh, fairly well for smaller employers. But what we found is that when we were selling to larger Fortune 500s, they really expected it to meet us in person and get to know us. And so we flew around the country and you know pitched this thing, and uh, we got lucky. You know, we had we had some employers that took an early risk on us, and uh, that really helped us to sort of cross the chasm over time. And like who was the first? Bi- who was the first big name client? Uh, CVS Health was our uh, biggest client, uh, first major client that we had. Um, and, and that was just really a landmark, you know, client, right. Third largest retailer in the country, you know, quarter million employees, just massive. Wow. That's a, that's a huge account for sure. So maybe talk a little bit about the financing of this business. I understand you raised some money. Um, what, what triggered the, the need to raise money and, 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 and maybe talk a little bit about the process of going out and raising your first uh, angel round. Yeah, so uh, ShapeUp is this, what we call a software as a service company, a SaaS company, and uh, there are fairly um, hefty technology requirements to build a, a SaaS company. And and what you have is a situation with SaaS, you tend to to grow fast. You invest in sales and marketing ahead of uh, your sales, and and you've got a long sales cycle. So you're funding that sales cycle. You're funding salespeople. You're funding marketing costs. You have very high costs of customer acquisition, and then there's you know there's a payback period. And so um, we very quickly realized that we needed to raise capital to hire salespeople, to hire a client, you know, client services folks to service the accounts after we won them. Um, and we needed to front that capital because we get paid over time, over you know, a three-year contract, let's say, with a client that we might sign. Um, but it takes us over a year to recoup the initial investment. So 
um, that was, you know, that's the nature of our business. And it's the nature of most SaaS companies um, that, uh, you know, that you do need to um, sort of front the, uh, the investment. SaaS so we, for software as a service. That's correct. Uh, so we initially went out to friends and family, like like many entrepreneurs and startups do, and uh, we raised an angel round of about three hundred thousand dollars. How much equity um, did you have to give up to to raise that first three hundred grand? Yeah, we gave up roughly about twenty percent of the company, you know, to raise that. Right, um, the first early rounds can be very expensive, you know, when you don't have a solid revenue track record, and it's tough, you know, to put a valuation on your company. How did squishy. you? Yeah, how how did you value it? I mean, it's it's kind of vaporware at that point, right? I mean, how did you come up with the valuation? Yeah, we, you know, we looked obviously at comps and we, we looked at our revenue, you know, we had several hundred thousand dollars in revenue in the first year. And, you know, we, we kind of looked at what would, you know, other companies like ours that were larger, what multiples would they trade at as a multiple of revenue? And then ultimately, you know, we went to market and, and it, the market sort of told us what it was willing to bear. I think initially we went out with a valuation that was maybe too high and, you know, we weren't able to, to, to raise capital and folks said, hey, you know, I'll invest at this valuation. And, and we kind of got to that. So the market determines it at the end of the day. Neat. Neat. So you go through this first round of, of friends and family. Um, and I understand you burned through that pretty quickly. Maybe talk a little bit about the evolution of the fundraising because there were a few rounds along the way. Yeah. So over 10 years, we did uh, close to six funding rounds. And I think the strategy was, let's not raise more money than we need in any given round. Let's, let's set a benchmark. Let's say, here are the targets we want to achieve. And here's what we're going to accomplish with the money we just raised. And then when we get there, let's go back and raise more money at a higher valuation, knowing that we built confidence uh, with the investors that we're going to do what we say we're going to do. And um, we're going to be efficient with our capital. So I think we just had a personal belief that if we have too much capital, we won't make wise decisions and we're not going to be efficient and we'll end up wasting uh, money and not having much to show for it. So we raised 300000 We came back a year later uh, to many of those same investors and said, here's what we did. We grew the business you know, 200, 300%. Uh, we, we brought in all these clients. We're proving out the model. We need, we need another million dollars to, to take this to the next level. So we raised a million dollars. Um, again, we hit another set of benchmarks. We got the company up to uh, close to four and a half million dollars of revenue. And then we said, we, you know, we're going to need professional funding at this point. We need to go raise millions of dollars to compete in this marketplace. We compete with companies that are very large, like WebMD and, and others that, you know, have hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, if not billions, and um, lots of access to capital. So we went out and we decided to do a series A venture round. And we talked to I don't know, 50, 60 different uh, companies. And one in particular took a strong interest in us, Q-Ball Capital based in Boston, Massachusetts. And they decided to be the lead investor in our Series A round. And they brought a syndicate, uh, a second investor, Excel Venture Management, also based in Boston, uh, as part of the deal. So that first Series A round was a $5 million Series A. Got it. So go back to the million bucks that you raised before the Series A. This was from, again, sort of friends and family? That's correct. Got it. And so was the valuation higher? Because I'm getting the first valuation, 300K for 20%. If I mean, I'm trying to do grade seven math here, but I think that means it's a valuation of a million five, right? Ballpark? Yeah, the, po yeah, the post money was, was about a million eight. That's right. Um, and then uh, when we did the million dollar round, you know, we were looking at a valuation of, of kind of ballpark $5 million at that point. Got it. So the, the value of the company had grown. How did, how did people react who'd written the first check in the $300,000 round when you're going back asking for another check, similar amount, but for a lower piece of the pie? Well, I think they saw that we had created value, right? So it would be different if we came back a year later and said, hey, we didn't really 
accomplish much. We need to pivot. We need to do something different. We need to raise more money uh, because we're funding our losses. Uh, instead, we came back and we said, we're funding our growth. Uh, what we're doing is actually working, and now we need to just put more fuel on the fire. Look at all these great clients we brought on board. Did Look at the get, client retention that we have. Did you so get forth. people saying, "Hey, if you guys are so smart, like, why don't you use? Why don't you get the thing to generate some cash here?" Like, did you get that kind of pushback? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of our friends and family investors, or I would say most of them, weren't familiar with software as a services companies, right? And and they're familiar with kind of more lifestyle businesses that grow more organically that fund your growth from your profits and, and that are kind of have to be profitable from day one. And, and that's just a different business that, that than we're in, uh, where we're actually look, happy to lose money as long as we're achieving really ambitious growth targets. Uh, because we know that eventually you reach scale and uh, you get the fixed cost leverage and uh, SaaS companies become you know cash cows in later years. But it often takes eight to 10 years before you get to that break even point. And along the way, you're losing quite a bit of money to get there. So that was sort of a philosophical you know, way of looking at a business that we had to help educate some folks. And certainly some people opted out and didn't, didn't quite understand that. But that was part of why we brought the professional investors and the venture capital investors who focus exclusively on software as a services companies, because they understand um, what the model is about. And they understand that SaaS companies ultimately tend to trade when they sell uh, as a multiple of their revenue, as opposed to a multiple of their EBITDA. And that's sort of, I think, a, a big sort of, uh, you know, mind melt for people. You know, they, they struggle with that if they're not familiar with the space. Most companies trade, you know, as a multiple of their of their profit. We actually trade as a multiple of our of our total revenue. Yeah, it's incredible the, the you know the impact of recurring revenue with the the the, uh, the margins of software for sure. Um, talk about the Series A. So so let's imagine we're talking now. Uh, you've got an entrepreneur in front of you who has maybe cobbled together a few shekels from friends and family, and now he's thinking of going to, 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 to the market to really get some professional money at the table, and, and he or she is thinking of going to, to raise their first venture round. I mean, you guys talked to 60 firms. I'm guessing you've got a lot of scars and war wounds. Like, What advice would you give a, a new entrepreneur who's going to raise their first significant round of professional money? Sure. Yeah. And, and, and certainly there's no one right way to do it. Right. I'm, you know, as, as many entrepreneurs as they're out there, there's, there's that many different ways and, and pitches for, for raising your first round. I think obviously, what, you know, one of the things we did is we cast a very wide net. Um, we didn't know who was going to take an interest and, and we knew that we couldn't afford to just talk to a handful and, and get turned down and then you know, um, be left with, you know, no money in the bank and, and be out of cash and have to shut down the business. So we, you know, we aggressively went after as many possible companies and talked to everybody. Um, what we did is we saved some of the ones that we thought were, were higher caliber and um, maybe higher potential investors for us until later so that we had some conversations earlier on with um, the second and third tier um, venture capitalists. So that way we could practice our pitch. And if it didn't go well, you know, it wasn't a big deal. We didn't burn an opportunity with the best one that we were really hopeful uh, of getting an investment from. So we kind of spread them out over time. And, and we said, all right, these are tier three. We're not as interested. We don't think they're a great fit. Let's go pitch them first. We'll get good feedback on what worked, what didn't, what questions are asking, how we tighten up our financials and our projections, um, you know, what, what, what really doesn't make sense in the pitch and so forth. And so we got better over time. And just as we started to hit our stride, that's when we went to the really, you know, top VCs. How did you figure out Q-Ball was, was one of the top ones? I mean, what was it about them that you thought these guys we want to save till we're really polished? I think there were a few things about them. Um, one is we certainly liked their proximity uh, to us. So that was an important piece for us. We were based in Providence, Rhode Island, and we wanted to be able to 
have close geographic connections to our, our VCs. So that was just one simple filter. Um, another was just the network that they had and, and connections. So uh, Q-Ball had a, a kind of entity they call the Q-Ball Collective, which is a network of executives and thought leaders all around the country that um, are often kind of heads of very large companies or, or top leaders within very large companies. And that was important for us because we we knew that our market was, you know, the Fortune 500, the Fortune 1000, and they had connections into that. And then they also had an expertise in investing in recurring revenue business models. So that's really our, our model is, you know, we sign a contract with a client, it's generally a multi-year deal, but we hope to renew that at the end of a three or four year period. And we have very, very high client retention um, you know, in the, in the high 90s, uh, 90% plus uh, client retention. So um, this, you know, they were a firm that understood that type of repeatable, scalable business model. And that was important for us too. Got it. Got it. So you raised 5 million in that round? We raised 5 million in that round. Um, what, about, kind of, what kind of chunk did you have to give away for that? Yeah. So, you know, the chunks that we had to give away obviously went down over time, you know, as the, as the value um, increased to the company. So it was certainly not as much as we had to give up in the, you know, in the initial round, but we, you know, we gave up a little bit of our company every time we raised capital. And our belief was, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs fall into this trap. They, they, they worry about giving away any equity (laughs) to to anybody. Um, You know, but our, our view was always, you know, it's better to own a smaller chunk of a much larger pie than to own a really big chunk of a pie that doesn't exist anymore. And that was that was our belief is if we run out of cash, you know, we'll die and uh, let's continue to grow this thing and be competitive. And at the end of the day, you know, that's where we're going to you know, create value for ourselves. So. Was there a was there a number, um, you know, you talked about fixed cost leverage. Was there a was there a number, either a revenue number or a number of customers that you figured that if you reached that point, you could stop raising money? Yeah, we, we generally see that companies in kind of business to business, software as a service, they sort of reach escape velocity around uh, $30 million in, in, in recurring revenue. What did, what did you call just, it? Escape velocity? Yeah. Dude, I, yeah, thought you so, were a, I thought you were a doctor. You sound like, like the smartest <laughs> entrepreneur in the room. And I'm like, where, where, where? I kind of expected this conversation to be kind of a little bland, a little doctory. There's nothing doctory about this conversation. Escape, I, I've been out of medicine again? for a long time. Yeah, escape, yeah so escape no, velocity uh, is a term. I, you by that, I mean... Um, you get to the point where you have optionality as a business. That's another one. Um, so you can um, you can continue to grow and, and fund your growth organically at that point. If that you know thirty million of of top line revenue and it's recurring, it's all high gross margin uh, software revenue. You should be able to to be profitable and and to fund growth from that point forward. That doesn't mean you you will. You might decide you want to grow faster and you or you want to make an acquisition or whatever. You may go raise capital to do that, um, but you have that option. You also, um, you know, you, you have the option to potentially start to think about going public if you're going fast enough. Uh, there are plenty of companies that have gone public at even sub $30 million of revenue in the software space. What was your as long top, as you have really high growth, you can justify. What was your um, top line revenue growth during these rate, like fund rate, I mean, like average over, say, that was this kind of five-year period you're raising money? What was our average top line? Well, what I, what I, I mean, we uh, when we sold the business, we were doing close to $20 million in top line. So um, in our first uh, Series A, we were doing about five million. So uh, we grew from you know five to twenty over that period of time of about six years. Got it. Got it. And so, talk to us about. I guess the the, the one downside or upside, I guess depending on on the way you look at it, is that once you take professional money, even when you take friends and family money, I mean the expectation is 
is that there is going to be a liquidity event for that those shareholders. Was it your intent to sell the company? I mean, was it a build to sell play from the beginning, or when did you decide that you you, you were going to sell? Yeah, no, this was a passion play for us. Um, you know, this was you know getting back to your to your comment about you know being a physician. Uh, you know, my partner and I started this company to help people lead healthier lifestyles and and to do our part to try to reverse the epidemic of obesity in, in this country. And so um, this was a mission-driven you know, endeavor, you know, as evidenced by the fact that it was a nonprofit organization. We, we never even had an intention to build a for-profit company. It sort of happened accidentally as we saw opportunities along the way. Um, so we, we had a goal of building a great company that was going to have a huge impact on, on the nation, and, and it has, and, and we feel really proud of that. Once we raised professional capital, you know, it, we, it sort of dawned on us that, you know, at some point, the you know, the party was going to be over, right? We're, we're going to have to, you know, find an exit, you know, for those investors. And I think, you know, we came to terms with that, you know, as long as we, you know, we committed to ourselves that if we did sell the company, when we did sell the company, we would make sure that it found a, you know, a great home, that it was a good fit for our people, uh, that the mission would continue to live on, that we wouldn't just simply sell to a large company that would dismantle it and and you know choke it to death, you know, and that was really important for us. So um, I think we we bought into the idea that that's okay if the company gets sold, it doesn't mean the mission goes away, it doesn't mean that you know this isn't about you know the ultimate outcome. Um, but you know if we're going to raise professional capital, we got to provide a return to those investors, and certainly to our early friends and family investors too. You know we owe we owe that to them. When you say it dawned on you that you were going to have to look for an exit eventually, I mean, what were some of the signs? Did, did you get pressure from VCs? Did, did people say, hey, look, I'm going to, did Q say, look, if we're going to invest money, we need to know what your exit option is? Like, how did it dawn on you? Yeah. So that's one of the questions almost every, you know, professional investor will ask, rightly or wrongly, of entrepreneurs, which is, what is your exit strategy? Right. And so the first time we got asked that, we said, oh, okay, we need to have an exit strategy. Um, you know, and, and I, you know, I tend to think that companies that are thinking about exit strategy early on, don't tend to be as successful. I think if you build a company to sell it, um, you 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 think smaller and uh, you become less successful and you don't create as much value. If you build a company to build a great company, um, companies tend to get bought, not sold. And so you, acquirers come and they look for companies that are just crushing it and growing fast and are, their people are passionate and they're going after a big idea. And those are the companies that tend to you know kind of attract their attention. Companies that look like they were kind of built, you know, just to sell and flip and make some money, they don't have that same luster. I, I think they don't, they're not as attractive to potential acquirers. So that's just personal belief, but I think a lot of uh, other entrepreneurs and a lot of investors would agree with that. Um, so, you know, but we started to get asked the question, and that's, that's how we knew that, okay, you know, we're going to have to exit this at some point. What was great about our investor, Qball, is they have an evergreen fund. And uh, what that means is most venture capital funds have sort of a time horizon. And, and after a certain period of time, they go and raise a new fund and they're expected to kind of return capital to the investors of that original fund. Uh, Cuball has a single fund and it's an evergreen fund. And so there is no time horizon. They want to build great companies. They want to make money over time, but there's no pressure to sell at any given time period uh, or after any you know certain amount of time has passed. And that was important for us because we didn't want to feel like this was a three or four or five year deal. We wanted to build a great company. And if along the way, somebody came along and wanted to buy it and we thought it was a good fit, then we'd sell. And so when did that happen? So that happened in February of this year, um, just about 10 months ago. 
um, one of our uh, top competitors actually uh, acquired uh, our company. Virgin Pulse uh, was our number one competitor ever since we started the company, and um, we uh, we joined forces with them uh, earlier this year. So walk us through that. They approached you. They did. Um, they they did, and it was interesting because we had been um, you know approached over the years. You know, every couple of years we had somebody approach us and you know interested in buying the company, and it was just never the right fit um, culturally, uh, strategically. We never kind of we were never excited about any of those previous um, inbound uh, inquiries. But uh, this one kind of caught our attention. It was sort of out of left field. We didn't think that our top competitor. Um, would first of all have the capital to you know to to buy us, but second of all, we just we we never sort of anticipated that happening. Um, what what happened on their end is they um, a year ago uh, or a year before they contacted us had raised a, a very large round of uh, funding from a private equity firm, and their private equity firm uh, is called Insight Venture Partners, uh, based in New York City, and their model is basically to uh, look at an industry that's very fragmented, buy who they think can be the leader in that space. Make a couple of acquisitions and and consolidate the space to create the largest player, and then that that company you know really becomes dominant in that industry, and then you have you know the ability to take that company public or make, make a strategic sale or whatever it might be over time. So they had bought Virgin Pulse as their platform, and they were looking for kind of complementary capabilities. And turns out we were really good at the, this kind of social connection piece and the gamification of corporate wellness and running what we call challenges, team-based competitions. And uh, that was a capability they didn't they didn't have. And so they ended up acquiring us. And they also bought another company that also specializes in social challenges uh, based in Melbourne, Australia. It's called Global Corporate Challenge. They actually did two different acquisitions on the same day. Wow. So, so walk us through that. They approach you. Um, how did the conversation go? First of all, was it the, the uh, Virgin Pulse CEO that approached you or someone from their VC backer? Uh, it was the CEO. Yep. The CEO approached and, and said, hey, you know, want to get together and, and chat. You know, we've been competitors for a long time. Maybe there's, you know, potential for us to collaborate. And what, and, uh, what did you think then? What, did you think he was just interested in collaborating or did you know that this was a veiled acquisition conversation? No, I didn't. I didn't quite know what to think. Um, I certainly knew about the large round of capital they had raised from Insight Venture Partners, and so um, what I didn't know is that Insight had, you know, has access to a lot more capital. So they were actually going to, you know, bring more capital in to make acquisitions. So, so I didn't quite know what to think. I went in with an open mind. You know, obviously a little bit of, you know, kept my car, cards close to my vest, right? As number one competitor, um, certainly didn't want to give up any competitive in- intelligence uh, in the meeting. But um, you know, uh, it was a, it was a good meeting, and uh, I was glad he reached out. So when did he when did he raise the issue of of an acquisition? In that first meeting, you know, in that first meeting, yeah, I, I, you know, if I remember correctly, you know, he said, "Listen, we." We've got access to a lot of capital, and we've got ambitions to to become the the, the largest player in the space. We think we've got a really special uh, product, and and we've got a lot of momentum, and and we really want to, you know, this is a very crowded and fragmented space. We want to begin to consolidate it and really kind of become the true leader. And um, we like what you guys have built. We think you guys would would make a nice complement uh, as part of our overall offering. And you know, we we'd like you know we'd like to have that conversation with our private equity firm if you have any interest. And uh, you know. I said, listen, we're not for sale. <laughs> you know, we're not we're not out trying to sell a company. We're not for sale, but you know, we're always interested in having you know conversations and um, happy to have the next conversation and see where this might go. And so, where does it go from there? From there, it went into a series of meetings, conversations that eventually evolved into a 
you know, uh, six month process to, you know, the, to, to acquire the business. So it, it becomes a very long and involved process, but, uh, that was the starting point. And so, um, did you hire any sort of representation? Did you have an M and a professional, um, running it for you? We did hire an investment banker, uh, to work with us to help organize the process and, uh, you know, make sure that, um, that we did it, you know, well, our, our board of directors was very involved as well, which was great value add for me because one of the hardest parts when you're selling your company is, um, it becomes a second job and you've got to run your business and make your business successful and hit your numbers. And that's what part of what the value, you know, the value that you bring to the table is for the acquirer. So you can't, you can't take your eye off the ball and, and, you know, let the company slide. Uh, but at the same time, you've got to do all this work, of due diligence and, and you know, structuring a deal and negotiating a deal and so forth. So it's really important, I think, to have um, additional players at the table on your side representing you. So did the investment banker shop the deal to other companies? They did. Yeah, any any good investment banker would do that. And, and they absolutely did. You want to create a competitive process. And um, were they able to get any competitive offers? They were, yeah, they were able to, uh, to turn it into a bit of a competitive process, and that was that was important. And ultimately, the you know initial valuation that was you know offered, you know, ended up being much lower than what the ultimate acquisition price was, and that was in, in part due to, to the fact that you know there was a competitive process. On percentage terms, how much more did the the actual fi final price? How much more was the final price relative to the initial offers? Um, as a result of sort of the competitive tension that was established, like was it ten percent more, fifty percent more, hundred percent? Yeah, it's fifty to sixty percent higher, based on on the competitive tension of having other people bidding. That's right. Yeah. How did you know when you were pushing uh, for more money, uh, and maybe this was more the investment banker doing this? But how did you know you weren't going to piss off Virgin and say, <laughs> you know, forget it, I'm out. Well, I think, you know, if a company really wants to acquire you, um, you know, they know what their maximum number is and, and they're never going to start there. And, you know, um, you, you know, you have a tough negotiation and, and you might, you know, you might upset them and probably we did along the way, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, I think if you keep coming back to the table and showing that, you know, you have an interest, uh, you know, there's, there's, these things have a way of working themselves out. So, um, you know, we didn't know if we were going to piss them off. Obviously we, we didn't go in and ask for just totally mind boggling numbers. You know, we had a sense, we did a lot of research to understand what the comps look like in our industry. You know, what do software as a services company, you know, companies trade at as a multiple of revenue, um, you know, w what kind of range based on the growth of our company, the growth rate based on our gross margins based on the customer, uh, retention rates based on the total addressable market. Uh, based on the lifetime value of our customer compared to the cost of acquiring that customer ratio. Those are sort of the key metrics that uh, that are looked at from a software as a services company. You can actually look at benchmarks and say, hey, we fall here on this metric and we fall there on this metric. And ultimately, here's what we should be looking at for a range in terms of valuation. So we went in, I think, eyes wide open, having done our homework. And I think um, that was important. What was your LTV to CAC ratio? Our LTV to CAC ratio at the time was about five. Nice. So what is the relationship, or maybe walk us inside the boardroom, uh, because you've got a patchwork quilt of owners, right? It, there, there's yourself and your partner. You've got professional money, and it's not just Q, right? They brought in a syndicate, so they brought firms in behind them. And then you've got 
all of the friends and family who who invested 10 years ago. I mean, how are you bringing them into the fold as you, you know, you're trying to gin up the offers, uh, raising it eventually by 50%. Are, are you, is everybody aligned on what you're doing? Do you have dissension among the ranks? Maybe talk, talk to us about the investors. Yeah. So generally the way um, it, it plays out when you raise venture capital is um, all of the common shareholders that have invested in the company up to that point end up getting represented by one seat on the board. And so we had one investor um, who was uh, one of our large common investors, and um, he represented um, the common shareholders on the board. So, so he's the one, and, and he's the one we work through. And and his job, his own interests are very aligned with everybody else who's a common investor. He has the same rights, the same terms, and so forth. Um, then the venture capitalists, you know, gen- generally tend to have you know a couple of seats on the board. Um, they tend to you know, have control. You know, if you do enough rounds of funding, which we did, they, they end up controlling the company, and um, you know they they have quite a bit of say. And then the CEO, uh, you know, generally has a, a seat on the board as well. And so, you get the board aligned around the strategy, and and you know what is you know what price would hit the bid for for us as a board. You know, what below which we, we're not willing to sell. Um, you know, and and what does a great acquisition look like for us, and what does timing look like for us. And once you kind of get that alignment on the board, generally one person will take the lead. And so the chairman of our board, Tony Chan from Q-Ball, he took the lead and he was the representative of the whole board of directors um, you know, in the negotiation. So you try to limit the number of players at the table. Certainly when there's a decision to be made, you go back and you know, through the back channels, make sure that people are on board and, and aligned with what we're doing. But um, you have to you have to let one person take the lead. Otherwise, uh, you've got too many cooks in the kitchen. So the initial offer, you, you got it up by 50%. What was the reaction of the board to the initial offer? Was it, that's not good enough? Or was it, oh my God, they're going <laughs> to, they're going to pay you what? I mean, did they, like, what was their reaction to the initial offer? Oh yeah, I think the the initial offer was not you know was not in line with how the board saw the value of the business you know what we had created um, the clients that we had brought on board the revenue that we had been generating and you know we just we felt that it it wasn't um, you know where we wanted to be but um, you know and if they hadn't increased you know we we would not have sold the business we were not desperate to sell um, we had just finished putting together a five million dollar um, debt round so that we had. Um, cash that we could use to, to to bridge ourselves to you know a really big you know twenty five thirty million dollar you know Series B fundraising round or some other uh, event. So we we didn't we weren't about to run out of cash. We we were not you know crunched for time. And uh, we said, hey, if we get to the place we want to get to in this conversation, great. If not, there'll be future conversations. And when you got it fifty percent higher, was the board unanimous, or were there still people thinking that you could do better? I think the board was unanimous. Um, I think uh, I think it was it was you know great outcome. It was a great valuation, and uh, everybody felt pretty solid about it. So you you know, s- I think one of the go oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I think one of the one of the things we had come to realize was to get our company. To, we were at an inflection point. Um, Twenty million in revenue. Um, you know, we had grown at a very healthy clip. But we were at a point now where a lot of our competitors in the industry have been raising big eye-popping rounds, 20, 30, 50, 75 million to $100 million rounds of capital coming into our space. It's a very hot space, corporate well-being, uh, a lot of money flowing into it because people see a lot of opportunity. And companies are, are you know, struggling with healthcare costs and, and productivity, and they're pouring money into these types of initiatives. And so we realized that to stay competitive with technology, you, know, you talked about technology in the beginning, 
you know, things are changing so fast. There's new mobile technology. There's new wearable technology. The way the interfaces work change. Um, analytics. You know, there were so many areas we needed to invest all at the same time, and we just couldn't keep up unless we went out and raised a really big round. So the the calculus for us was: do we go raise a big round, sign up for a bunch of dilution, and another five to ten year, you know, period of time to grow the company? Because whoever invests a big amount of money is going to want to get four times, five times of that money back. Um, there's a lot of execution risk in that. Or do we, you know, or do we join forces with with someone else who's got that capital and we can grow, you know, as part of a, a larger organization with more security, having locked in the value that we have created and taken taken chips off the table. So that was the that was the sort of decision point, and we decided that hey, let's let's do that, let's do the latter, um, as opposed to uh, you know doubling down and and kind of rolling the dice again. Uh, for another five plus years. You know, you talked about Virgin Pulse and, and what they saw in you as uh, I've written down here, you know, the gamification and social challenges were, were things that they saw as, as core, you know, strengths of yours that they maybe didn't have. In the negotiations, when you're trying to bring them up by by what amounted to a lot of money, did they ever just turn to you and say, guys, like, you're not the first ones to learn about gamification and social challenges if we just pour enough money and enough engineers at this, we could compete directly with you. I mean, did they ever threaten to basically take their money off the table and just beef up their, uh, their chops in those areas? No, they didn't. And, you know, and I think part of it is, you know, we brought a lot more value to the table than simply the product. Um, you know, our client base, um, was just incredible. You know, um, we worked with, you know, eight of the fortune 50, um, really, really large employers that Virgin Pulse, you know, desperately wanted to, you know, to, to, to serve and, and have in, in their client base. And so, um, you know, 250 clients, um, you know, really great names, really happy clients, great, um, you know, customer satisfaction scores, great net promoter scores. And so it, it was, you know, it was the whole package, you know, it was our team that we had built. Uh, it was the product, it was the client base, and it was the revenue, and there was really nothing else. There were no other assets out there um, other than a great company in Melbourne, which we also acquired, uh, that really kind of held a candle to that. And so um, they, they couldn't recreate what we had, you know, in in all, you know, in, in its entirety. And I think that was clear. So you signed this letter of intent um, with Virgin Pulse. Did they have sort of a sixty-day no shop where they had time to do their diligence? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Once, once you, you know, enter into that agreement, you know, you have to shut down your other conversations and, um, you know, and they get to dive deep and, uh, you know, learn all about the business. So, you know, it's always, that's you know, always sort of a, a moment in time where you, you swallow really hard, you know, you're about to open the kimono and, you know, let them in and, and share with them all the detail about your company, all warts and all. Right. Um, and, and you have to be as transparent, you know, hundred percent transparent. Right. Um, and how, so, did, how did you ensure that they weren't still fishing? Was there a breakup fee in the letter of intent? Or how did you ensure that this was not just some large corporate, you know, intelligence? Yeah, there interest? wasn't a breakup fee. At that point, we had gotten to know the team very well. They had invested quite a bit of time and money, um, you know, in the process. It had been going on for many months. So it became clear that this wasn't just, you know, fishing for competitive intelligence. They they really wanted to make a deal. I think also, you know, the 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 their board member from Inside Venture Partners put his reputation on the line. And he, you know, he connected with our chairman of our board and, and basically said, listen, like when we say we're going to do a deal, we do a deal, you know, unless we turn up something that, you know, you misrepresented or something that's a fatal flaw in the business that we, we didn't know about, 
you know, we're, we're going to go through due diligence and then we're going to move forward and, and we're, you know, we're, we're serious here. So at some point, you know, it, it, it comes down to people and do you trust them and um, do they have a track record? And, you know, this is somebody, you know, who had just an incredible track record and inside venture partners, a highly respected firm, one of the largest private equity firms in the world. So that's how we built comfort around the process. But, you know, it's, a, it's always still uneasy, you know, um, letting your competitor into all of your files and all your customer, you know, information and, and your employee information and so forth. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a risk. What was the biggest difference between the letter of intent executed and the final share purchase agreement? Uh, probably just the length <laughs> of, the, of the agreement. But the, ter- the material <laughs> terms didn't, didn't budge? No, no, not at all. So what are you doing now? I mean, this sounds like a pretty good exit for all involved. I mean, uh, I'm sure your original friends and family are probably buying dinner this uh, holiday season for you. That was a pretty good investment for them, I'm guessing. Yeah, it was. Um, it was a great investment, um, you know, for, for them. And, you know, we were thrilled because, you know, when you when you invest in a friend or a family member that's starting a company, you know, you generally don't expect to ever get that money back. You know, it's just, you know, uh, friends and family investors take big risks early on for really risky companies at, the, at a very early stage. And um, so we, we just felt really proud to be able to recognize the fact that they took a risk on us and, you know, to, to pay them back handsomely. Um, yeah, it, it, you know, this was a great year. We uh, So we, we joined Virgin Pulse in February. And since then, you know, I've been working to help integrate the businesses. You know, it's a three-way, mer- you know, merger and three companies coming together to be one. And so a lot of work. Uh, we've got employees around the world, uh, given that uh, the, the Australian company actually had offices in nine different countries. Were you so, tempted just to kind of hang it up and hit the beach? I wasn't. Um, I wasn't. And and I think it's because I felt like there was unfinished business. You know, um, we really wanted to change the industry and build a really large company. And we were on the pathway to do that. We had a great impact and we affected millions of lives at, at shape up and, you know, we built a good company, but um, it just felt like we weren't done yet. Uh, we still the, had room room to run. What's the toughest thing about being an employee again? I think, uh, you know, certainly there's a, there's a loss of some control and some, you know, some cultural identity or you're the founder, you're the CEO and you have an overview of everything. And now instead you report to somebody. So, um, I started this company right out of school. It was the first time I've ever had a, a job, you know, a normal job, you know, I've never worked for anybody before. So, and, and, you know, it's, it's been great here. The leadership team's wonderful and I'm proud to be part of it, but, um, that's an adjustment. You know, when you wake up every day and you're an entrepreneur, you're putting out fires, you know, you've got your leadership team, you're managing them. Um, when you wake up the next day, you've sold your company and you work for somebody else. Now you're an employee and, um, you know, you have to, you know, work through somebody else to, you know, understand what your you know, metrics are and what, what you're expected to accomplish and um, what you work on on a day-to-day basis changes you know, dramatically. So, I mean, how would you characterize your level of passion uh, post-sale versus pre-sale? I think what happened for me, and this was one of the the surprises, is it, it took me a few months to sort of get my groove back. Um, you know, it was just uh, it, was, it was so much work and effort and time and stress went into getting the transaction done, and at the end, it was such a relief. Uh, but it was a massive change. You know, after ten years of doing the same thing, um, suddenly the, the, everything changed. You know, on a personal level, you know, a lot of changes. Um, you know, in my life, yeah, you know, it was a life changing you know event. And then also on a professional level. So it took me a few months to kind of get in my groove and figure out, you know, 
what should I be doing every day to, to, to add value and how should I be allocating my time and who should I be working with? And, you know, who's my team and, you know, getting to know a whole set of new people and getting to set a, you know, a set of new values and a new culture that, you know, luckily weren't all that different, but, you know, different enough that, uh, that it took some time to, uh, to kind of adjust. So that was, that was surprising for me. I didn't expect that to take a few months, but, um, but it did. And, you know, I think the level of passion now is, is, is back to, you know, to where it was. Do you ever, ever wonder how life would have unfolded had you become a doctor? I mean, I know you are a doctor, but have you, had you become a practicing doctor? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I think, you know, at this point I, I would have, you know, been a pediatrician in the suburbs somewhere seeing about 25 kids a day and, you know, leading a pretty happy life, you know, too. Life kind of takes you on on different journeys. And if you keep your eyes open and kind of, um, you know, follow opportunities, you never know where you're going to go. But, um, you know, I'm really happy things turned out this way. I love um, what I do. I love being an entrepreneur. I'll definitely, you know, I've got more startups in me in the future and I'll probably end up being a serial entrepreneur. And I, I kind of figured out what I love to do and what I'm good at. And uh, I think that's, you know, that's all anybody can hope for. Yes, it is. Tell me, uh, how do people get a hold of you uh, or learn about Virgin Pulse? I mean, give us a, a bit of a plug here. Yeah, absolutely. Anybody's interested in learning, uh, Virgin Pulse is online at virginpulse.com. Um, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is Rajiv Kumar MD. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn. Um, but uh, yeah, we're easy to reach. I'm happy to you know to to connect with anybody that wants to learn more about either the entrepreneurial journey, uh, anything that I talked about uh, today, or about the company. Rajiv Kumar, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.